Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. There's this old saying, the inmates are running the asylum. So why do I mention it? Well, Dan Nathan is away this week, and the inmates in this case would be yours truly. And the great Danny Moses. Danny Moses, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm having a guy Adami intro moment. You ready? Connie Corleone. Talia Shire. Yes, the sister of Francis Ford Coppola. Continue. Correct. Rocky Four. Talia Shire. Adrian. Rocky, you can't win. What was Rocky Four about? Fighting a Russian. Ivan Drago, you can't win. Well, let's bring it back to the Fed. We're going to talk about this in a second. Pal shouldn't win, and he can't win, no matter what he does. When he tries to gain some type of credibility. Anyway, that's what I'm feeling. I feel a little Rocky Four, you can't win. Always good little Talia Rose Shire, Connie Corleone. Always is a great character. She was born a Coppola, by the way. You know that too, right? I just said her brother's Francis Ford Coppola. You don't listen to like everybody else in my life. Oh, Sorry. By the way, I believe it's this week, the 50th 5-0 anniversary of the release of The Godfather. I remember I went to see it for my 25th birthday. It was a big deal for me back then. It's a big deal for me now. You are, by the way, listening to On the Tape. I'm Guy Adami. I am not James Kahn. I am not Al Pacino. But I'm here today with Danny Moses, who would have been a fantastic Mo Green. Dan Nathan is on vacation. Later on. We're going to go off the tape with the brilliant Peter Bookvar, whose appearance this week is paramount given what's going on with the Federal Reserve and what's going on in the world, quite frankly. So, Danny, look, here we are. We're taping this on a Thursday. The market's had a couple remarkable days. The move on Wednesday, about 15 minutes after the Fed announcement, the S&P went from 42.51, I believe, on the downtick. It rallied 100 S&P handles basically in an hour and a half. And I got to tell you something, every single word I had heard out of Jerome Powell that day was hawkish. I don't think he could have been more hawkish. And I thought he was hawkish back in November. Listen, he had to be hawkish coming in to try to get any shred of credibility. Whatever he has left, he had to be. The market was already pricing in seven hikes. And I know we're going to talk to Peter about this, obviously, when he comes on. Their last dot plot, remember, at the end of last year, we talked about this last week, was three and 22 and three hikes in 23. They're now at seven and 22 and four and 23. But he's kind of hedging himself because what's interesting is he took down GDP growth in 2022 from 4% to 2.2. He's giving you the recipe for stagflation of what might happen. And so I think in one way, it's good that they're acknowledging it, that they're going to go after it. But all he did was price himself back to where the market was. And I just think we were down a lot. Obviously, it was a deep breath moment. And that's all it really was. And I know we've had a little bit of follow through here, but I fully expect calmer heads, I should say, which would normally mean higher market. But then this time, I think it means rational market will prevail. I agree with you. And I found myself on Wednesday, if you had told me a few hours prior, all these things will be said. The market had rallied the day before. What do you think is going to happen? And I said, we're going to be down 75 to 100 handles easy in the S&P. The NASDAQ will be taking a bath. Rates would go higher. They did. But pretty much couldn't have been more opposite in the market. It just goes to show you the market continues to have a way, 
each and every day of humbling not only the participants, but me specifically, Danny. In the middle of all this, let's not forget, China came out and showed support for the markets. That's always something. There was a lot of bleeding going on there leading into the Fed. Not necessarily Fed directly related, but was China in bed with Russia? What's going to happen to them on the geopolitical front? You saw Alibaba get smoked, Tencent get smoked over the last week or so. So they came out and basically said, hey, we're here. We do care about our cap markets. And that's all it took. So this market is going to remain volatile for the foreseeable future. When you have oil trade from 90 to 130, back to 92, and now I think back over 100 here as we sit, which is a major input that gives you a sense of geopolitical risk where we stand. There's a huge input on inflation and so forth. There's still tons of moving pieces here. So it's going to be a a wild ride here, I think, for the foreseeable future. I agree with you. And as you know, because you watch CNBC's Fast Money, my favorite ride at Disney World has always been and will continue to be Mr. Toad's wild ride, followed closely, by the way, by the Hall of Presidents, just in case you see me at Disney World and you want to buy me an A or a B ticket, but I digress. Let me ask you a question. You mentioned Alibaba, so let's talk about it. Alibaba right now, given the rally we just saw earlier this week, is a $325 billion company. That's not small. That is a significant, it's not a biotech stock. The stock rallied 35% in one day. Does that make any sense to you, one, And isn't that a sign of a really broken market, too? Yeah, it's what we call bear market rallies. It can be very powerful. And things can get oversold. There's something called the RSI, which a lot of professional traders use, the Relative Strength Index. Every stock has them. People can see them on Bloomberg. The S&P has them. A high number read is like 80, and a very low read number is 20. That's just that stock relative to the rest of the market. I don't know what it was when it rallied 35, but I bet it was in the 30 range, if not lower. So again, if you have a high short interest or you have a low RSI, those things can happen. And I think that's really all this really is, is people are a little bit off sides. And listen, is Alibaba a real company? Yes. Is it going to be around? Yes. Are they controlled by the Chinese government? Yes, a little bit. And what does that mean to free markets and where the stock could trade? I don't know. It's a name I don't trade because of those factors. It's way too technical in nature because of it. Absolutely. Look, and it's been in a downtrend since Halloween, boo, by the way, of 2020. But there are other things that are happening as well, right before our eyes. Everybody loved banks, and you've been extraordinarily cautious, correctly so, given the backdrop. But banks, even at J.P. Morgan, which is everybody's poster child for the best-run bank on the planet, might very well be, even that fell under the auspices or the magnifying glass of valuation. And that stock got taken out to the woodshed. But there's something else out there that concerns me a little bit, and I'm not trying to get doom and gloom here, but... I look at a Citibank, Danny, and you've mentioned this a number of times that at its trough recently was trading at 70 percent of tangible book value. That speaks to, in my opinion, some real problems, not only here, but in Europe where they have significant exposure. Well, who's the intermediary? We're waiting to see if Russia is going to make their payments. It's Citibank. That's where those payments are actually going into. So you don't need to know more of who's exposed around the world. I say that a little tongue in cheek, but those are global stocks. What's interesting is that Banks right now should be having their day in the sun. The Fed just told you they're going to try to go seven times. And if you look at the XLF, it's basically round-tripped here and it's been kind of flat. And that's because, to what your point is, Guy, geopolitical risks, some of these banks have international exposure, and you're seeing a major difference in performance within the banks, like the ones that just focus on the U.S. are outperforming right now, obviously the ones that are global in nature, the ones that are more Wall Street-centric, that we don't know if the IPO calendar is going to come back and the M&A calendar is going to come back. So again, not to beat a dead horse, but they're very different. They're all very different. But Just in general, the banks should be set up nicely here if they can avoid a lot of these losses, but it appears they're not. 
It appears the more and more you see this volatility in commodities, you just see nickel alone what the exposures may be. So it's going to be tough sledding. And I told you guys this a month ago, bring Paul Volcker back for many reasons. One, to control inflation and two, the Volcker rule, because you're starting to see with that easing what might happen here. So I don't expect to be catastrophic by any means, guy, in terms of losses, but it's enough to slow business down and have people take a look. It's meaningful. I agree with you. In our world, there's something called tail risk, which almost by definition means there's a low probability of it happening, but it's something you have to take into consideration. So I set this question up with that. President Xi and President Putin, I think it was on the eve of the Olympics, went out, shook hands, released, I think, a 5,400-word document. Pretty interesting, I thought, given the backdrop of what's going on. We obviously know what happened or what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. But what are the chances, I guess, A, that China aligns themselves in a meaningful way with Russia? That's a tail risk. Or B, China does something with Taiwan, which, in my opinion, could really be, and I'm going to choose this word, catastrophic. And I mention it because this. Correctly, McDonald's, Nike, Starbucks, Apple, all pulled out of Russia. I get it. You know what? Good for them. They did the right thing. But if there were to be aggressions, if there were to be some sort of dust up between China and Taiwan, wouldn't by definition, Danny, they be forced to do the same thing in China? And what would that mean to the market? It's a great question. Probably not for me to answer or take a long time. But let me just say in general, the whole supply chain issue because of COVID was brought to light, how global the economy is. And I think you're already seeing U.S. companies start to bring stuff back home where they can, which is great for the working class, because if we bring factories back here, yes, that will be more expensive. Yes, margins might be lower. But Guy, if you were to ask me what would be the result of that, I think it would be this movement we're already seeing beginning of bringing factories back to the U.S. and being much more self-reliant for many reasons. One, because we're not held prisoner to the factories that are there because Foxconn wouldn't be the only maker of Apple products out there that they're dependent upon because all the stuff that we're making over there, maybe we can make it over here. And let's not kid ourselves. We've had iterations already in China where Nike and some other companies want to ignore slave labor conditions that are over there, whatever these horrible conditions are. We've already seen iterations of that politically of what that can mean. And there's been a little bit of movement to your point. If something were to happen with China and Taiwan, it was a big movement. That's what I think the end result would be, would be a full bring back everything and let's be more self-reliant as a country. That's just my thoughts. Listen, we've had Vinny and we've had Porter on this show, I think three times if memory serves. But again, you're looking for certain voices. There's that Led Zeppelin song, All of My Love. One voice is clear above the din. In this case, it would be two theirs. They were really constructive on oil most of last year. We obviously saw this huge spike in crude oil recently. I think north of 130 in WTI, it's pulled back significantly. I would submit it ain't over. I don't think it's over. I think that's a classic blow off top in terms of the short term. The sell off makes a lot of sense in terms of some of the rhetoric around Russia, Ukraine, the chance for peace talks. But I still think there are many chapters left in this book. So if you look at the recent sell off in oil, does anything stick out to you in terms of opportunity? If you told me oil was going to go down to 65 or $70 and you say, you asked me, hey, Danny, what happened? We're in a recession because there's going to be demand destruction. We already saw what can happen when oil just moves up from the 100 to 120 level. What happened to the consumer? You had an impact already on what was occurring to the consumer. They were pulling back spending in other areas. And so that was a big issue. Guy, you've always said the cure for higher oil is higher oil. It hits people directly and it hits the middle income consumer, the lower income consumer the hardest. So 
this Russia situation, unfortunately, which is tragic and more important than anything that we're talking about. I don't know what people think as far as truces and resolutions. There is no resolution that's going to happen here that involves Putin going back to his hole in Moscow. There is an annexation of some kind. Again, not to get political. I'm way out of my field when I say this, but just think logically. The market rallies from time to time and oil trades down when we hear 22-hour truce is going to be occurring, which is all bullshit to a degree. And so oil to me is the proxy for both geopolitical risk. And then the problem here, Guy, is that it's an input for inflation. And so it has this double whammy effect right now because everyone's so obsessed with it as an input. And so I don't know where it's going to go, but I do think over time, supply and demand will even out because if oil does stay high enough, there will be demand destruction. Listen, all the ESG investing, which I'm all for, came back to bite people a little bit that now wish for the goodness of the world that we could just have energy so that we can fight off these issues that Russia is causing. And so you can't have everything. And I think we're just dealing right now with trying to reconcile all these issues. So I'm not going to try to predict, but I do believe oil is probably a buy on any of these big dips would be my guess. I agree with you. And I do also agree with you that if oil were to have a 60 handle on it, it would mean a lot worse things in terms of what we currently have. And you would think that would be bullish, but it would be under the backdrop of something really bad going on. So I think it's important to point that out. I will say, if you're looking for a trade or looking for an investable opportunity, I think we've done a decent job with this. You go back and look at the OIH. That's obviously another one of these ETFs, but basically comprised of three stocks, Halliburton, Schlumberger, and Baker Hughes. I think that's roughly 50% of the ETF. We had talked about it when it was in the mid-170s, low-180s, and said what an opportunity it was given prior support. We thought it would trade up to 240, 245, and then we talked about a breakout above 250 would probably get us close to 300. We overshot to the upside. Well, for you playing our home game, past resistance in the form of 245-ish becomes support. And as we speak right now, we're getting not dangerously close, but we're approaching those levels again. So If you, like I do, believe there's another round of this, I think on a risk-reward basis, Danny, OIH shuts up really well, and I'm not looking to play stock market with you. But we've gone now, you and I, we've said a lot of different words, but one word we haven't said, and everybody's waiting because I think they probably have the -the on-the-tape bingo card too, the same way there apparently is a market call bingo card. Well, here you go, folks. Get ready with your markers. Tesla. Because there's a lot of weird things going on with Tesla as well including them halting bond sales tied to leases. Now, that might sound wonky, but you know what? I think it's important, Danny. Yeah, listen, it's not just them. Credit spreads have wine in general. We saw what was happening in the buy now, pay later companies, obviously having trouble getting some of these deals off. Investors of these products are demanding a higher return right now where rates are going. So this is nothing new. So I think the Tesla bond sale, which I believe was backed by their auto leases, just didn't have the demand at the prices that they were willing to give. And that's really all that is. I wouldn't read too much more into that. I don't think Tesla's alone in this. Believe me, any chance to hit Tesla, I will. So I think it's more macro nature, but it's a wake-up call. And it's a wake-up call to help people view the cost of capital. And if your cost of capital is higher, your equity values are automatically lower over time. So anyway, that's really all it is. Believe me, any chance to take a shot at this guy, you know I will, but I think it's just part of the mix of what's going on in the markets. And I'm sure we're going to talk to Peter about credit cycles and all those different things because it will come up. But you got to watch the credit markets. And I think we've been smart, Danny, to point out a couple of things that you have to watch. And HYG being one of them, which earlier this week made a new 52-week low below 80, subsequently bounced. But that's one you absolutely have to have on your radar screen. Another one, if you're looking for an instrument to keep, again, up on your board, 
would be LQD. Those, I think, will tell the tale in terms of what's going on in the credit markets, and we'll see. Sometimes you wake up, and Danny, what do they call it? I've asked Dan Nathan this, and he gets mad at me. But when you have a certain style, and you drift away from that style, somebody should come up with a term for that. Style drifting? Style drift. Thank you. I'm not that bright as you know. So I mentioned style drift because, look, I get the AMC thing. I get the Reddit crowd, WSB. I get the whole thing. Hold the line and Braveheart and all that shit. It's really sexy. It's a lot of fun. I understand. By the way, the CEO of AMC, Adam, he couldn't sell his stock fast enough. He looked like Usain Bolt getting out of the block selling his stock. So just bear that in mind, number one. Then I wake up this week and I see that AMC made a significant investment, significant in terms of the size of the company and what they invested in it, and a gold mining, effectively a gold mining stock. Explain that one to me, Danny, because I'm sure there are a lot of layers to this. Where's that place you go to, uh, Bloomin' Brands or something? Or what's the place with the onion? Outback Steakhouse, yes. Outback Steakhouse, right. So AMC announces that they're investing in something called Highcroft Mining Holding Corp, which is a $100 million gold miner. He's doing it in partnership with Eric Sprott from Sprott Securities, who's also investing $28 million in the company. Mudrick Capital is a larger shareholder of Highcroft. You might remember Mudrick was both a debt and equity holder of AMC back in the day, so I'm sure that's where this brilliant idea may have come from. How his creditors let him throw $28 million in this company, I have no idea. Adam Aaron's rationale for doing it was that he feels that this company is exactly where AMC was at the time. I think it's horrendous. And I think the fact that there were several apes that are on Twitter right now claiming that they bought this Highcroft at under a dollar, some averaging 80 cents or so. I don't know how that's possible, how random that would be, unless maybe they knew something about it. I don't know. But the whole thing stinks. And people always say, hey, Danny, what's the sign where the market's going to finally bottom and wash out? When I see this crap and people react to stuff like this, it tells me we're nowhere near. On top of that, for people that want to chase this HYMC or don't understand the dynamic of it, they announced a $500 million at-the-money equity offering, $500 million, which means they're going to be issuing stock in perpetuity with the wonderful broker-dealer B. Riley, who will be issuing this equity. So I don't even care about Highcroft Mining. Good luck to them. But the fact that they did this with AMC shareholder money, to me, is just ridiculous. So listen, I love gold, so I'm a little bit mixed here. But I'll tell you this guy. Maybe this is the thing that gets the Reddit crowd into gold itself that we've been waiting for. It's going to take us to 2,500 or 3,000. So let's just leave it at that. But I still think I see crap like this. I just know the market's not done. And we'll wait for Dan Nathan to come back to have a meaningful gold conversation because as many of our listeners know, I guess I'll use the term because he's not here. You fleeced him once again. (laughs) It's pretty unbelievable what's going on in the last year on that front. But again, I digress. And by the way, I'll take and Bancroft over Highcroft any day of the week, Danny, just to put it out there. And I ask you this question. I've been to London. You've been to London. I encourage folks that haven't been, stay at the Savoy or stay at the Dukes. The Dukes has a great bar. There's a great restaurant in the Michelin building called Babendum. La Pont de la Vature, I believe under the Tower Bridge, is a wonderful restaurant to go to. And I can continue this if you want. Why do I mention London? Because I think the LME is a 147-year-old institution, storied, fabled institution, Danny. And something happened that we've never seen before. Basically, they had a halt trading on one of their most important contracts. Nickel, folks, you play in our home game, is literally, in today's world, one of the most important commodities, not just base metal, commodities out there. 
and they had to shut it down for a while. And I think I know what it means, Danny, but I'm curious as to your thoughts. You actually said Dukes is one of the places in London? The Dukes. The Dukes were taken out trading places. It was the Dukes. They tried to corner the orange juice market. This felt very similar to that. Someone trying to corner the shorting of the nickel market and blew up. Yeah, so the LME trades nickel. Coincidentally, it was bought by the Hong Kong exchanges for 1.4 billion euro back in 2012. If you want to be a conspiracist of one of these investors, obviously got caught short, was a Chinese tycoon. So we can go there another time. But yeah, obviously what happened in Russia, Ukraine caused nickel to go up. They closed down the exchange and took trades off the tape. Nickel traded as high as $100,000 a ton, I think is what it is. It's now back to the 40000 level. They've tried to put restrictions in place now since they've reopened it. Meanwhile, nickel was still freely trading in Shanghai. So we know the real value is somewhere between thirty and 35000 a ton is kind of where nickel is trading right now. And we're still, I think, sitting above forty as we sit here today where the LME price is. So they changed the limit. They reopened it yesterday, 5% closed. Today, they expanded to 8% closed. You obviously know where it's going to go tomorrow, whatever the new limit's going to be. And it's just a bad look for everybody. One, you wonder what banks were kind of involved in convincing the LMD to not just shut down trading, but to pull some trades off the tape. JP Morgan, we know, was a counterparty to the Chinese billionaire, this nickel trading house that was obviously exposed here and was short. They refused to cover. They said banks were giving them loans. And guess what? Now they get to live and fight another day because they'll probably end up covering at 25 or 30,000, who knows? But it's just scary in the sense of the way that a lot of these exchanges for certain products are set up. And I believe it's one of the reasons that we're going to see continued volatility and very volatile trading in all of these metals across the board. So again, I think this is just one of the canaries, many canaries in the nickel mine, so to speak, Guy. No question about it. We'll be having it on the tape in a couple of weeks where we discuss whatever entity, sovereign mining company blew up on the back of this because it's out there. We just haven't figured it out yet, but it's out there. And to me, it speaks to, we're supposed to have efficient markets. These markets, as I mentioned earlier with the comment about Alibaba moving 35% in a single session, they're anything but. These are broken markets, and I have thoughts on why that is. It doesn't matter. But again, you see the movements in some of these things, and we somehow believe that our equity markets or individual stocks can't do similar. Well, we've seen it happen over and over again. Just so happens we haven't seen it in the broader markets yet, we'll see. Now, I actually have been to London a number of times, Danny. I'm sure you have as well. And one of my first trips there, I went to a Charity Shields match at Wembley. I'm sure a lot of you folks are familiar with Wembley Stadium. It was Manchester United, which I'd never heard of at the time. I obviously know who they are now, against Newcastle. A guy named Eric Cantona was one of the star players. Roy Kent? No, not Roy Kent. Eric Cantona. And the chant would be, ooh, ah, Cantona. And I think he had a hat trick that game. And Alan Shearer was playing in that game. I think the great Alan Shearer signed a ridiculous contract at the time. And the dude that married one of the posh girls, David Beckham, was making his first appearance in a football match. So I went to one of these things. It's a lot of fun. It was a Sunday afternoon, blah, blah. Charity Shields match. Guy, why am I talking about this? Well... Chelsea FC, looks like your guy, and I know your buddies with this dude, I guarantee you guys have played golf together. Looks like Ken Griffin from Citadel fame is getting in the mix. Bite your tongue. Well, listen, I saw his group includes the Rickett family who started Ameritrade, who owns the Cubs, and they want to go in together and make a bid for Chelsea, right? Because they're buying it from one of the oligarchs who was forced to sell. So it'll be $9 billion or who knows what the valuation is going to be. But the first thing I thought to myself was, wow, if you could apply the technology 
that Citadel has with their payment for order flow. And you could combine that with Ameritrade at the time who was selling all the order flow to Citadel. Imagine this. You'll know exactly where the ball is going on the field before anyone else will. What an amazing strategy that would be to figure out. You know, they always say in hockey, skate to where the puck is going, soccer, go to where the ball is going to be. They're going to have perfect information. So if Chelsea wants to go undefeated and win the Premier League, sure, why not? Just throw around these billions of dollars. So my first thought that came in was that. So I wanted to share that with you guys. I appreciate the long intro into where I wanted to go with that. Long intro. I was just setting it up. You have to set these things up. You have to paint a picture. I'm like friggin' Da Vinci or Michelangelo, one of those cats, or Rembrandt or Renoir or one of those other guys. See, I can rattle off that stuff as well. Before we get out of here, Danny, obviously, as we sit here on a Thursday, we're right in the midst of the beginning of what the fans call March Madness. I still call it the NCAA tournament. I'm sure there are a lot of folks that tuned in not to hear me ramble about Alibaba or the Fed or gold. They tuned in for a sole reason. Danny Moses, who's basically Kreskin during the NFL season, they want to know what Danny's picks are for this tournament. Well, folks, I'm sorry to tell you, we ain't giving them to you today. Come back next week, and as the field whittles down, Demo will give you his picks. Plus, it's not fair to do it when Dan Nathan's not around because there's no way we can undress him again. In addition to not having picks for the tournament. We don't have a rot this week for you either. So I'm sorry, folks, but we do have a mini rot. So a mold, I guess you call that. Yeah. So as you know, I've talked about the whistleblower program before. The SEC will give out 10, 20% if you can find a public company that is doing something untoward and then there's a fine and then you get a piece of it. So people are out there, they want to hate short sellers and they go after them all the time. But sometimes short sellers can do a service. Now, I don't know They don't tell you who the whistleblower was, but the headline was SEC awards approximately $14 million to whistleblower. And they basically said, played a critical role in an investigation. And they said there was one particular person that they went after. So I started to think, who could that be? And that means there would have to have been a settlement recently. So I started to look and I realized it's probably Trevor Milton, Nicola, right? So they just settled with the SEC for $125 million late last year. And this awards is 14 million. So it kind of runs in that 10 to 12% type thing. But Hindenburg came out, if you remember, in September of 2020 and called out this company saying these hydrogen cars will never exist. This guy, Trevor Milton's out there perpetrating a fraud, et cetera. Stock at the time was 35 or 40 bucks. More than that, GM had just announced a partnership and a potential investment at the time, obviously, because this was going to be one of their partners in the EV world. And so the stock, I think, was currently 10 bucks or eight bucks or wherever the thing is trading. But think about this. He exposed this company and this guy who ended up leaving the company and he's been charged with fraud. He potentially saved GM from going down a pretty bad path. They pulled out of that deal. He probably saved investors from putting more money in this company, whatever. And guess what he got in return? He got $14 million. And so short sellers can really speak the truth and get it out there. The reason that I'm agitated right now is Ryan Cohen and GameStop is coming out with earnings tonight, actually. I don't even care what the earnings are going to be because it doesn't trade on fundamentals. He's decided to go after short sellers. And my biggest fear we've talked about this before, is people wanting to blame short sellers for whatever goes on in the market. So here's some of his tweets. This is from March 15th. The good use of taxpayer money is the government cracking down on hedge fund short sellers, okay? The day before that, the short sellers are the dumb stormtroopers of the investing galaxy. Well, you know what I say to Ryan Cohen? He doesn't even know how these markets work. And guess what? He's involved with certain companies that have debt, that have convertible debt outstanding. Guess what? You sell short equity to hedge out if you're dead. There's other uses for obviously short selling, which he probably doesn't really know about. But in general, this is the type of mentality, though, that's out there. Guy, listen, 
I guess this is a rut. If short sellers are deliberately out there starting rumors so they can spread them and cover later, they should be in jail, okay? And those get investigated in time. When people in the long community want to go out and collude and run a stock up for no other reason, whether they spread rumors or not, people should be charged with that as well. So I think there's a nice middle ground. And this just points out at least certain things within the SEC are actually functioning. And if you pay attention to some of these short seller reports that Hindenburg wrote in this case, you can learn a lot about the market. So I'd like to stay even keel about it. So I guess this is a rot, guys. Sorry. Back to you. It went from mold to rot right before my very eyes. And, you know, those were more than just words, which reminds me of an album by the great band Extreme, More Than Words, 1990, I believe, off the porno graffiti album. And that's from memory, by the way. But we're going to have more than just words in a few minutes when Peter Bookvar of the Bleakley Group joins us. Stay with us. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Peter Bookvar is the chief investment officer of the Bleakley Advisor Group, an $8 billion wealth management firm. He's also the editor of The Book Report, a market and economic newsletter. Prior to joining Bleakley, Peter was a managing director and the chief market analyst for the Lindsay Group and served as an analyst and portfolio manager for Omega Advisors. He's also a CNBC contributor, and he's our friend. Well, when the Fed speaks, and on a week like this, I say this sincerely, there is no better voice to talk about the week that was, the weeks that will be, than Peter Bookvar. And once again, we're thrilled to have you back on on the tape with us. Pete, how are you? Thank you, Guy. I do appreciate it. I am a loyal and big fan of the show. I listen to it every single week. Love the banter between the three of you, the conversation, and I feel like I have very similar lines of thought. There's no question about that. We align. And I think that's both good and bad. And I don't try to be dogmatic. I know you're not as well. And I think some people will think that we are dogmatic in our views. And there's a fine line between trying to have a level of consistency to your thoughts, and then you can get on the verge of dogmatic. But the more I hear this Federal Reserve speak, Peter, the more I'm convinced that I'm on the right track. Danny Moses is on the right track. But more importantly, Somebody like you who studies this stuff 24-7 is on the right track. I just want to add that I feel like I'm always channeling my internal Peter Bookvar. Just to echo Guy's comments, we do think the same. And I'm very curious to get your take. And I'll just give you my thought initially is that even when he tries to maintain credibility or gain any type of credibility, it can backfire on him. He's really in a no-win situation. I didn't know what the market was expecting. The market was already pricing in seven rate hikes. He said seven. And then we can talk about what he did after that regarding his dot plot and economic projections. But we'd love to get your thoughts just off the cuff on what your take was. He definitely laid out the plan of 
basically confirming what you just said, what the bond market has been pricing in and what the Fed has, with the leash, led the market towards. And that's that six to seven rate hikes and maybe an eighth. And I think they threw in the eighth because they left open the possibility that maybe if they have to raise 50 at one of the meetings, that's the plan. And then the hope was reflected in the projections. And it's really hopes and dreams is what I refer to it today, because when you look at their expectation for them to raise the Fed funds rate almost 200 basis points this year, an additional almost 100 next year, and magically the unemployment rate in their forecast is going to remain at 3.5% for the next three years. That's why it's hopes and dreams. And then I throw in the Mike Tyson analogy about we all know about one's plans until they get hit. And I think that is going to be the case here. And I get asked the question a lot is, oh, are they making a mistake? I'm like, no, they made the mistake. They decided to be the Ministry of Social Justice and prioritizing the unemployment rate rather than focused on inflation. And it's the problem that every other central banker has or any bureaucratic institution has is that they're very quick to address a situation, but they have no plans on how to remove themselves from that. So they went from, okay, let's address COVID to then, okay, we need to maximize employment. In other words, let's get the unemployment rate back to where it was pre-COVID before we do anything in pulling back from the stimulus. One excuse after another without understanding the mistake of the 70s, which was you need to prioritize stable prices in order to get maximum employment. And Powell actually even acknowledged that yesterday. Unfortunately, he should have acknowledged that the day that Pfizer said the efficacy of this vaccine is north of 90%. That's when the world changed. That was the window to a reopening, but the Fed didn't adjust to it at all. They kept the emergency policy on, obviously, just until yesterday. I thought the most striking thing was taking down their GDP forecast for 2022. I think it went from 4%, I believe, to 2.2%, if I'm not mistaken, in the midst of raising seven times. So you could say, well, it's good they're prioritizing inflation. But to your point, things don't really match up when it comes to unemployment. And there's no question that COVID, the gig worker economy in general, which was already emerging pre-COVID, has changed the way I think that unemployment is measured anyway. I'm not saying everyone's getting paid off the books, but certainly there was a period of time where through PPP loans and stimulus checks, it's just hard to gauge how motivated people are. But again, Peter, to that point, when people do come back to work, they're making more money. And that is the wage price spiral situation. I think the Fed potentially knows deep down. And if that unemployment rate is that low, maybe they're telling us that they know inflation is going to stay high and move high because it would probably come with higher wages. Right. And what those higher wages do in terms of that spiral is that it makes the inflation picture just more persistent. As opposed to seeing commodity price spike, it comes right back down again. There's nothing long lasting on that. But when it starts to embed itself in higher wages, that's not being created because there's faster productivity. It's being created because there's just a dearth of workers and employers are just doing everything they can to get warm bodies so they can open the restaurant on a Sunday instead of having to close it because there's not enough people. That is a different, unproductive labor input that these companies are going to try to recapture and then further embeds inflation into the economy and certainly psychology. Pete, I'm going to impel myself here as I typically do. I've done it for the last 15 years on CNBC. Why should I stop now? But 
people talk about the Fed being behind the curve. And I think I intuitively understand what that means. So here's my question. Real inflation in this country measured by them is 7.9%. I would say that if they measured it correctly, we'd be either side of 15%. But let's play their game for a second and round it to 8%. That means real yields in this country are still significantly negative. I mean, meaningfully negative. So when people talk about the Federal Reserve being behind the curve, if I start doing the math, that puts them three, three and a half, maybe four years behind it. What does that mean, though, for the layperson listening to this? Well, for the layperson that has money in a savings account, they're losing 8% a year in real terms. For a bank that's making a loan to a business at under 8% on real terms is going to lose money on that loan. So in real terms, we're actually walking ourselves backwards is what that means really in lay terms. So I want to ask a question along those lines of consumers feeling it, but I want to marry the fiscal policy and monetary policy. It seems like there's a current lack of acknowledgement on the 30 plus trillion debt that we have in this country. And correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, I think the average duration on the debt is somewhere between five and a half and six and a half years. So everybody's focused and obsessed on the 10 year and everybody's focused and obsessed on the two year, which we are and we pay attention to that. But I'm starting to look at the five and seven year yields. And if you start to project out basically what the Fed is saying from a interest payment perspective that the government will owe, it just seems to me an unsustainable number. So how long until we start to talk about debt to GDP, interest payments on that debt, what that really does? Where are we on that right now? Just to quantify, and I don't have the exact number, so I'm just going to give a range. I think the U.S. government spends about five to six hundred billion dollars a year on defense. So for every hundred basis point increase in funding costs, it's going to cost the U.S. government $300 billion extra in interest expense, just to put some context around that number. So we know we are spending a lot more than we're taking in from a tax perspective. And I'm going to tie this into what we talked about pre-interview. So the Fed has not just ended the expansion of their balance sheet, they are going to be reducing the size of their balance sheet by not reinvesting maturing bonds. That means that the U.S. government, in order to finance what's now a higher level of interest expense and ever-widening budget deficits, they need to find other buyers of these bonds. And banks have been large buyers of U.S. treasuries. Foreigners have stopped increasing their purchases of U.S. treasuries, both on a percentage basis relative to total debt and on an absolute basis. If you look at it over the last five or six years, they've been net sellers of U.S. treasuries. So if this cost of funding continues to go up, at what point does it need to go up in order to bring in other buyers to replace the Fed? And does it start to squeeze the finances of the U.S. government where more and more money is being allocated to interest expense rather than other things? Pete, we talk about price discovery a lot in markets. The opposite of discovery, obviously, I would imagine is hidden. And I would submit, I think correctly, that effectively what this Federal Reserve and quite frankly, other central banks around the world, they've hidden things. So there are a lot of things being masked as stable prices and solid investments and terra firma and those things, some of the problems have been hidden by the largesse of central banks, specifically our Federal Reserve. What's going to happen when we actually do have real price discovery? What do you see beneath the surface that the Fed has masked? 
Well, the impact of the Fed is so much more pernicious than people really get their arms around. Look what they've done to the cost of housing in this country. And it's not just the Fed, it's home prices in Australia, in Canada, even in Berlin, where they wanted to basically nationalize all the apartments because rents were going up too high. They've made it so much more difficult for the average family income to afford a home. And Danny can speak to this, of course, from the mid-2000s, but they repeated that again. And when you think about a home is, for most people, the largest big-ticket item, and the price of that just went up 20% year over year. So making living unaffordable, and then a lot of these people have to rent and they're paying up for that. One argument that I don't think enough people talk about in terms of the impact of the broader economy is that you look at small, medium-sized businesses that don't have access to the capital markets to borrow money. They don't have access to a Goldman Sachs relationship. They're the local restaurant. They're the franchisee that has five locations. They're a local plumbing or electrical business. And they need to go to their regional bank and their small local bank. Well, the Fed, by crushing the yield curve, lowers the profit margin on every single loan that a small bank would offer. Therefore, that bank, knowing that they have less room for error, ends up giving out less loans. So for the average business, not only do you have to take out a personal guarantee, you got to put up your house, you probably have to put up your wife's assets just to get a basic loan. That is one part of the economy that gets ignored when we debate the Fed, while the Fed basically just makes money cheap for those that have access to the capital markets. So the damage the Fed does is so much broader than just price distortion or boosting asset prices and lifting the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy like autos and housing. The rot extends so much further. So there was an article a couple of days ago in the Wall Street Journal. More states and cities are looking at rent control because rental prices are going up too high. Well, that's in response to Fed policy. So what's going to happen? We're going to have rent control and we're going to crimp the supply of apartments and homes even more. Let me bring this back and then bring it back forward to cover what you guys just talked about. So the quantitative easing versus quantitative tightening. So I'm a firm believer that I think they'll keep reinvesting proceeds. Maybe they'll give it a shot in this May meeting that they're talking about. But one question for you, Peter, then I have a follow-up. What is the equivalent to a one quarter point increase as far as liquidity when Powell said that? So we think we're going to start to run this portfolio off and it equals one quarter point. What is he talking about? This is all related to econometric models, basically throwing a dart at the wall to try to define how many dollars of QE equals a rate cut or how many dollars of QT equals a rate hike. And that is just based on a model. The neutral rate of interest that they talk about, that's based on a model. These are all made up things. But with respect to QE, because I want to differentiate that from changing interest rates, is that when Ben Bernanke wrote an editorial in the Washington Post in November 2010, rationalizing QE, he said it's going to help to lift asset prices, stock prices, which would in turn help the wealth effect, which would in turn spur consumer spending, and that would create a healthier economy. QE was meant to ease financial conditions and lift stock prices. So QT, by definition, does the exact opposite. That was always the fallacy when Janet Yellen said, oh, it'd be like paint drying. If taking it away is like paint drying, then putting it on should be like paint drying. Why do it at all? Whereas the rate hikes will have a more blunt impact on the demand side of the economy, because at the end of the day, the demand side 
is the only thing a central bank can influence. They can only influence the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, which are essentially housing and autos. I love being a lab rat. So I'm going to bring it back to your comment about housing. So if they do follow through with quantitative tightening and they've made it clear that the first thing that they won't reinvest is mortgage-backed securities, we're already seeing mortgage rates start to move substantially higher. And not just because rates are moving higher, just because credit spreads are widening a little bit across the board. The demand for these products are already anticipating what's going to happen. We are living in real time to what this may look like as far as mortgage rates. To your point, home prices have gone up exponentially, and now the cost to finance those homes will go up. Now, inevitably, home prices will come down in certain areas of the country. They will be impacted by just monthly cash flow. But this experiment in real time that they're seeing, I think they're underestimating how wide mortgage spreads could get or how high mortgages could go just from not buying them anymore and not reinvesting proceeds. I'd love to get your thoughts there because I think that's underappreciated. It is a good question. And I do wonder because at the end of the day, agency paper is still essentially government debt. So I think there'll be a limit to the extent at which it widens relative to treasuries, just because there'll be buyers out there that say, okay, well, it's essentially a government instrument. It's implicitly guaranteed. And I'm going to get a better yield than I would on a US treasury. So I think there is some point where buyers would come in, but there's still going to be a widening. And that widening can also influence the lending that banks do in giving out mortgages. It's hard enough to go through the mortgage process, whether it's for a purchase or a refi. And if banks become more worried about credit and the widening out of these spreads, maybe they are just a little bit tougher with their standards. And that on the margin obviously can have a big impact. There's obviously a lot of geopolitical things going on, Peter, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But indulge me for a second with this question. I think it's somewhat leading, but I'll ask it anyway. As citizens of this country, we need to put a lot of trust in the judgment, not only of our elected leaders, but of these Federal Reserve officials, of which however many of them are, mostly men, their judgment really dictates what's going to happen in this country for years, if not longer. I think we all agree with that. We also all agree that these are highly intelligent, very well-educated people that have forgotten more about economics than I'll ever know. I'll put that out there. Why do I ask the question? Well, trading stocks, trading municipal bonds, all legal underneath the Fed mandate, underneath the rules, everything that Robert Kaplan did, Eric Rosengren did, all legal. Not saying anything was nefarious at all. But I'm not that bright. But I will tell you, that if I had been a Fed official, I would have said to myself, you know what, even though I'm allowed to do this, it just doesn't seem right to me. It's setting the wrong message. The optics are really bad. That would have been my judgment. How can these men, again, a lot smarter than I am, not have the good judgment to understand that the optics around it were really bad? And if the judgment there was impaired, why should we trust that judgment about anything? I agree. I think that there's a certain level of maybe arrogance is the right word, that they think too much of their own power. And it's funny when I hear Powell say, oh, now's the time for humility. Well, there should always be a time for humility when it comes to your influence on the economy. There's no humility when a central bank wants to ease, but all of a sudden there's humility when it's time to tighten. And I think to your exact point, they held material non-public information not necessarily on corporate news that would influence a stock, but certainly on very important monetary policy that clearly has a direct influence on the economy. It's an ethical question and how they didn't use better judgment, of course. Capitalism has this incredible regenerative ability to come up from the ashes 
on its own. It doesn't need fiscal stimulus all the time. It doesn't need all this monetary stimulus in order to do that because human nature progresses forward as we grow in population, we grow in productivity. That's what we need. But central bankers have taken the thought process that without them, you'd be nothing essentially. And we need to help you all the time. And I think that obviously they've clearly overstepped their bounds to the point where the law of diminishing returns kicked in many years ago. And that I argue that monetary policy, when rates are zero, when there's QE is actually restrictive and not accommodative, as they like to call it. Danny wants to get in here and he's going to get in here. So here's a short question. Are recessions a bad thing? Yes or no? Recessions are a cleansing process that are a necessary part of an economic cycle. Unfortunately, now we have credit cycles instead of normal economic cycles, which means that we ebb and flow with the cost of capital. And as the cost of capital goes up, economic growth slows down, and there's no way to separate out the two. But because of all the debt out there, there's a higher sensitivity to these credit cycles, which is why central banks do what they do in wanting to eliminate a recession. But a recession hurts bad behavior as it should and rewards good behavior and gets people that have been offsides back to onsides through this cleansing process. Well, now we know there's going to be a recession since Powell said, quote, the probability of a recession within the next year is not particularly elevated. So that pretty much guarantees a recession. So, Peter, bringing it back to geopolitical landscape, the same way that COVID changed the behavior of consumers, especially in this country, whether it's to stay at home, become more efficient, do this, that and the other. This situation with Russia and Ukraine is, I feel like, changing the way the world operates. Who buys oil where? Does ESG rank over being able to feed your family? Where do the things rank? So there's a lot of things going on that I'd love for you to touch on, both in the oil world. And an example is Saudi talking to Beijing about selling them, obviously, oil instead of receiving dollars, getting wands in exchange. And then as far as what gold's role here is going to look like, because I feel like we're at a true tipping point for it. This new world order basically showed itself with all the sanctions, particularly on the Russian central bank, where we basically confiscated half of their reserves. And we made it essentially off limits to them, which then means that every central bank reserve that's in a dollar or a euro, not denominated in your own currency, is fair game if you cross some line that the international world doesn't like. And does that mean that central banks say, you know what, I don't think I should be holding all those US treasuries that I've been holding. Maybe my dollar euro reserve allocation relative to my total basket shouldn't be this high, and that I should have some more gold. Because if gold is stored in my own warehouse, well, there's no counterparty risk. There's no liability on the other side. It's mine. And when the time comes, if I need money for it, well, I can liquefy it in some fashion, but it's mine. So I think that that has broad implications. I think to your point about the news this week that Saudis and the Chinese are talking about denominating transactions in one, that would be a game changer too. It goes back to the early 1970s when the US government came to an agreement with the Saudis and said, if you denominate your oil sales in dollars, we will protect you. We will militarily protect you from your enemies in the Middle East. So let's do that handshake. And now obviously most of the transactions are done in dollars. So the dollar hegemony, I guess you can call it, is now more vulnerable than it's been in the post-1971 gold close window and post-Bretton Woods world. And gold, all of a sudden, is more than just, okay, an inflation hedge, and you buy it because 
real rates are negative or you algo traded against the dollar, now it becomes an even more relevant, important potential central bank reserve where their paper assets really are more vulnerable to confiscation. Pete, the argument for being bullish U.S. bonds, in other words, thinking rates would stay low or go lower, was somewhat simple in that it was a relative strength thing. You look at Germany had negative yields for seemingly ever, and it was just a comparison between our yields and other developed nations yields. I get it. Okay, that works. Problem now is this, Chinese notwithstanding. Everybody seems to be doing a bit of an about face here. I would submit rates could go a lot higher than people think. And you're going to get to this point. You mentioned diminishing marginal returns. I don't know where it is on the graph where rates start to be a real problem, but we're getting there, brother. I agree. I think that the Fed is overly optimistic in the extent that they think they can raise interest rates. Therefore, a two-year note yielding 194 actually is pretty attractive if you're looking for some sort of cash equivalent. But if you're to ask me, where do I think the 10-year yield goes? I think it's a much more complicated situation because yes, you have higher inflation and the long end yields deserve to be much higher, but it's not. But you also have, and I don't think enough people who look at the US treasury market appreciate, the influence of where the European bond market goes is going to have a huge impact on where US rates go. When you look at years of zero rates, negative rates in Europe, and this whole QE global experiment over the past 10 plus years, to me, the epitome of the ultimate financial bubble, the biggest in history, was when we had $17 trillion of negative yielding bonds. At its peak, most of that in Europe. Europe was the epicenter of the biggest financial bubble in the history of markets because they turned an asset, owning a bond, where you get paid a coupon on your principal back, into a liability where you actually own an asset, but you then have to pay to own it. And now that the air is leaking out as the ECB is pressured to respond to the inflation that they have, if all of a sudden the German 10-year bond yield, which has gone from minus 65 basis points to 35 basis points with a plus sign in front of it, all of a sudden goes to one, one and a half, well, I'd be hard pressed to think that the US 10-year is still going to be at 220. It's possible it goes to two and a half to three, irrespective of your growth expectations faltering. So there is an unwind here in this global bond bubble that I think still has room to go as central banks are in a synchronized pace of tightening. You had Taiwan this week, not only raised interest rates for the first time since 2011, they usually move in eighth point increments. They actually raised by 25 basis points for the first time since 2007. The Bank of England raised interest rates, and we know this is a global phenomenon. And so where global rates go are going to have huge influence on U.S. rates. And it's not just going to be analyzing growth and inflation here in the U.S. to say, okay, this is where the 10-year should go. This is actually the thing that I'm grappling with the most is where are 10-year yields going to go? Are we going to be Japan? Are we ever going to be viewed as a credit risk around the world? To your point, the structure of the new world order is coming in where people hold less dollars, less treasuries. If there's no buyers for us issuing this debt, which we're going to have to do for a prolonged period of time, it's a very scary thought. I fully expect, by the way, not just not to have quantitative tightening, but maintain quantitative easing. And I don't know how long, maybe the, if the 10-year hits 260, 270, 280, we'll get something out of the government. Because like I said before, I think the marrying of the fiscal and monetary policy, while it needs to stay separate to a degree, Janet Yellen's got to be running around and just thinking what can happen here. Because the situation that you guys are talking about 
is very, very dangerous. And so to your point, Peter, this new world order combined with the debt that we have combined with people not just buying dollars all the time, that's a pretty scary setup. So honestly, maybe I can win another bet with Dan on something. You got to help me, Peter, because I'm up for another five dimes on something from him. Maybe I should pick the 10 year and say one and a half percent before 3% or something. So any last words of wisdom on that? Because to me, that's the barometer and the proxy that everyone's going to be watching for the health of our economy, for where inflation is, for better, for worse. It's what they're going to watch. And it can send mixed signals. So why I think it actually goes higher before it goes lower is the reaction in the U.S. Treasury market post the Russian invasion. So the 10-year yield the day before they invaded was about 192, 193. And then we have this big scramble for treasuries. I think we fell as low as into the 160s in yield or maybe low 170s. But that lasted maybe a week. And here we are just three weeks later and the 10 years kissing almost 220. So if you couldn't rally in a situation like that on a flight to quality backdrop, then that tells you that there's something wrong. But I will tell you what's wrong. I'm referring to the US 10-year in this scenario as quicksand. Because on one hand, you see growth slowing around the world. You see a war of real tragic importance here. And you would want to buy treasuries, but you'd be buying treasuries into an 8% inflation world. You think you're jumping onto firmer land, but what you're jumping into is quicksand. So that tells me that long rates have to go up further before they drop. They have to go up to the point where things break, the Fed panics, they stop tightening, and they revert back to QE in order to contain the rise in interest rates. Pete, you are the Daniel Silva of the marks. I mean, you are a prolific writer and you're brilliant. You know how I feel about you. And this is not just over the last couple. I mean, this goes back a long time. We've been a little heavy here. So a little levity because Amanda Diaz, our crack producer, says, you got to lighten the mood here, Swiss. So let's lighten it up. What is Peter Bookvar doing for shits and giggles each and every day? Listening to company conference calls of stocks I own. Uh, watching the markets. But putting that aside, I'm getting ready for my fantasy baseball draft in a couple of weeks. That's what I am really looking forward to. I think you grew up in the area. So who is your baseball team of choice? My first memory as a baseball fan were my parents waking me up when Chris Chambliss hit that home run against the Kansas City Royals in the 1976 ALCS and been a Yankee fan since. Listen, I'm doing this from memory and Danny is probably going to at me if I'm wrong, but I think he hit it off of Larry Gura. Mark Littell. Mark Littell. There you go. Nice pull by you. I remember watching that game, and I was born in 1963 late, so I was still relatively young. Yankees didn't win shit during those first 12, 13 years, and that home run, for some reason, it's still one of the great sports memories I ever had. So thanks for sharing that with us, Pete. I appreciate it. Yeah, and Danny, I listen to your football picks during the season every week because I'm in a football pick pool myself. And when I pick Arizona instead of the Rams and you say Rams, listen, Danny's got not hands. I'll follow your picks. You can follow mine. We'll see how we do 22. Peter, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for always being so generous with your time. We truly appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate having me on. Thanks so much. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. 
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.